0: Today we're reading 2nd Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3, which is the whole book of 2nd Thessalonians. This is the New King James version of the podcast. The King James version is also available. Let's first begin with a word about 2nd Thessalonians. This epistle from Paul follows the first letter that he wrote to them by a very short time, probably he wrote this around 52 AD or so. It was written to clear up any misconceptions these people might have had regarding the tribulation and coming of Christ the rapture, and so forth, as a result, perhaps, of reading his first letter. Just as in First Thessalonians, we see here in chapter 1, verse 1, that Paul was accompanied at the time of his writing by Silvanus and Timothy. We know quite a bit about Timothy, and his identity is beyond dispute. Bible scholars disagree, however, regarding the identity of Silvanus. Uh, most are convinced that Silvanus is Silas' Latin name as a Roman citizen— while a few believe that this refers to another individual altogether. Fact is, Silas did accompany Paul and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey, which began in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. The mention of Timothy almost certainly identifies Silvanus and Silas to be one and the same. In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1, we have the greeting. Verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure." Well, Here we see that Paul is thankful for their faithfulness, especially in the midst of the tribulation that they're undergoing. This praise is appropriate. He says it's fitting, so much so that Paul is complimentary of them in the presence of believers in other churches. Their faithfulness has translated into an abounding love toward one another. Then he talks about a coming day in verses 5 through 12 of chapter 1. Verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ." These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power." that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Paul introduces the concept of judgment on the wicked in these verses. Wicked people trouble the righteous. That troubling serves as a manifest evidence that they are in Christ. The thought here is comparable with John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. That's where Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And then in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, notice verse 6. It says, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Paul specifically tells the Thessalonians that just as they're being caused tribulation right now, there is a time in the future when God himself will bring tribulation on those wicked people. As a matter of fact, Paul obviously was anticipating this tribulation to begin within the normal span of his lifetime. That's because he particularly references those who trouble you in this verse. That's compatible with the statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. That's where Paul wrote, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Yeah, Paul definitely anticipated that the rapture would take place in his lifetime and that the persecutors of his lifetime would experience the wrath of the tribulation period. However, notice that his praise in verse 6, when he says, Those who trouble you would seem to exempt from the tribulation those who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. Two observations on verse 6 are worth making here. First of all, the rapture is imminent. In other words, nothing must be prophetically fulfilled before this catching away of believers. And secondly, the tribulation is only for the lost. It is not for believers. Before one can properly place the events of chapter 2, then verses 7 through 10 of chapter 1 must be thoroughly understood in light of the event of John's revelation. What is Paul specifically referencing here in these verses? Well, in verse 7... We see the appearance of Jesus Christ from heaven accompanied by his mighty angels. The Greek word for angel is angelos, means messenger. In verse 8, we see the reference to a flaming fire. Jesus takes vengeance on the living unsaved. And in verse 9, we see the term everlasting destruction, which follows verse 8 for the unsaved. And then in verse 10, Jesus at that time will be glorified and admired by believers, meaning saints or people who are saved. Without question, the verses seven through ten here describe the events of the tribulation period concluding with the Battle of Armageddon found in Revelation chapter nineteen verses eleven through twenty one. Verses seven through ten do not describe the rapture where the sum total of the event only involves the disappearance of the saved people or born again people according to First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. In verses 11 and 12, Paul encourages them to make certain that they are part of the believers of verse 10 and not the unsaved people of verses 8 and 9. In chapter 2, we'll see a great deal of specificity regarding this seven-year period that's characterized by the vengeance of verses 8 through 10. That vengeance culminates with the battle of Armageddon. The whole period is figuratively referred to as that day in verse 10. That's a common phrase used to describe a period of time characterized by an event, both past and future, by the Old Testament prophets. That's the way they used it. We'll talk more about the usage of the word that day, the term that day, a little bit later in the podcast. In chapter 2, Paul answers the question Are we in the tribulation? Let's look at verses 1 through 12. Now, here's an important note. You can't understand the scenario of chapter 2 unless you thoroughly understand the setup to the passage, which we just looked at, verses 7 through 10. Let's read beginning with verse 1. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter as from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things?' And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, one more understanding is vital here. There is a difference between tribulation and the tribulation in Scripture. The Greek word for tribulation is thlipsis. It means trouble, translated trouble or tribulation. It's the word for general trouble in one's life. Everybody has tribulation. However, the prophecy regarding Daniel's 70th week in Daniel 9.27 describes a seven-year period which is commonly called the tribulation, seven years of trouble. That's the period described by Paul in this chapter. Whatever misconceptions the Thessalonians may have had regarding where they were in relation to the tribulation, Paul sets out here to clear it right up in chapter 2. You'll recall that Paul assured them that they were not appointed to wrath in 1 Thessalonians 5:9. 9. But from the answers supplied in this epistles, they still seem to be kind of worried about that. Verse 1 frames the concern. What about the coming? Parousia is the Greek word there, often rendered presence. What about the coming of Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him? Well, here's the issue. If they were not appointed to wrath, what's all this tribulation that they're experiencing? What's it all about? Well, verse 2 helps us understand how this concern escalated. Let's look at it closely. He says, first of all, don't be shaken in mind or trouble. Disregard contrary statements that supposedly came through someone's revelation by the Spirit or supposedly through someone's word of knowledge or even supposedly and by the way, not so, as though it came in the form of a letter purported to be from us, Paul says, from me. his I didn't write such a letter. If you'd like more information regarding the spiritual gifts cited here, then look at my notes on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Well, here's the erroneous belief that the day of Christ had already come. The Greek verb enisteme is perfect, active, indicative in form, and should be understood as an action that had already been completed. The verb itself means to come, therefore, had come correctly captures the essence of the false teaching described in this verse. They apparently believed that they might be in the tribulation already. Now, that false teaching to which these people had been exposed stated that the trouble they were experiencing meant that they were in the midst of the tribulation. Paul's mission here is to prove to them that they are not, absolutely not in the tribulation. So Paul lays some heavy-duty prophecy on them regarding the tribulation period and the beast of Revelation chapter 13, who is commonly referred to today by people as the Antichrist. Now, biblical correctness would require us to refer to this puppet leader of Satan as the beast, but popular reference leads us to refer to him as the Antichrist. In actuality, the only references to Antichrist in the New Testament are found in 1 John 3 places and 2 John 1 place. These may be references to the tribulation personality of Revelation 13 called the beast, but that's just not certain. Many have understood the usage of the word day in this and similar passages. They only understand the usage of this word in the context of describing a 24-hour period of time. Therefore, it seems to them that the word must describe the day, the very day the rapture takes place, or the day that Jesus returns to earth. Actually, the word day of verse 3 is used figuratively like we use that word ourselves. You know, we so always talk about back in my day, or this coming a day. Now, you may find it helpful to read my notes on Philippians chapter 1 regarding the usage of the word day. There is a consistency in Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, regarding the usage of this term, day of the Lord. Whether it's talking about the attack of the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the attack of the beast, commonly called the Antichrist, or the Tribulation itself, it usually refers to an event or series of events accompanied by severe judgment or judgments upon people. So, in keeping with the essence of this scriptural passage and this scriptural usage here, Paul is referring to a time which is longer than 24 hours that is accompanied with distinct, unpleasant characteristics, specifically those are the events of the tribulation. So, here's what Paul says about that day, the tribulation period of verse 3. He says, first of all, there will be a falling away. That Greek word is apostasia, also translated apostasy. And he says that falling away must occur in verse 3. From Revelation 6, this appears to take place during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. Then we're told that the man of sin and son of perdition, that being the beast or otherwise known as the Antichrist, that he must be revealed in verse 3. Then we see that he will insist on being worshipped as God in verse 4. This, by the way, coincides with Daniel 9.27, Daniel 11.31, and Daniel 12.11, and also Matthew 24.15. It's known as there the abomination of desolation. We therefore know that this takes place in the middle of the seven-year period, and that's based primarily upon the passage in Daniel 9.27. We understand that these written comments follow up on specific instructions that Paul had given them regarding this issue when he was with them, according to verse 5. Now, the beast cannot be revealed until the restrainer, verse 6, is removed. I, along with most fundamental Bible teachers, believe that the restrainer here in verses 6 and 7 is the Holy Spirit. The presence of God will be removed from the earth when believers are raptured just prior to the tribulation. And that's because believers are the sum total of the presence of God on this earth. That's because we're the temples of God according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Until there are new converts beginning with the 144,000 of Revelation chapter 7, the presence of God will have been removed from the earth to leave it wide open for the Antichrist to gain control. He'll garner that control for the first three and a half years until he feels he has enough clout to proclaim himself God and worthy to be worshipped as such. The beast, commonly called the Antichrist, will be destroyed by Christ in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. And that'll be at the final battle of Armageddon in verse 8. And then finally, people who reject Christ's salvation before the rapture will not choose to be saved during the tribulation, according to verses 9 through 12 here. Of course many people will be saved during the tribulation but no one who previously rejected Christ as savior. That's what these four verses seem to say. I mean what else could he mean by these comments? And then we have uh, an admonition not to be confused in verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle." Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So in these verses, Paul encourages them, well and us, to rest in the facts of the first twelve verses of this chapter to recognize that we are to be delivered from these events through the pretribulation rapture of believers. In verse 13, he acknowledges their salvation as a community of believers by referring to them as chosen inasmuch as God had directed Paul to take the gospel to them on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 17. As a result of the sanctification, that's the Greek word hagiosmos, it means set apart, the sanctification of the Spirit and belief in truth, they were saved. Subsequently, verse 14 tells them that they were called to glory that which is experienced by Jesus Christ himself in heaven. Now, that being the case, they are encouraged to hold the traditions which they were taught in verse 15. Those traditions include not only his personal teaching to them by word, but also by letter, undoubtedly a reference to the guarantee that they were to be delivered from the wrath that's to be found in 1 Thessalonians 5:9, his first letter to them. These comforting words are to be their consolation we see in verses 16 and 17. Now if you're looking at the written notes of bibletrack.org for today, then there's a prophecy timeline there. I'd also encourage you to read the summary and the notes on Matthew chapter 24 verses 1 through 31, which is paralleled by Mark 13:1 through 37 and Luke 21:5 through 28 to gain a fuller understanding of the prophecy timeline here. And then finally in chapter 3, Paul says, Y'all pray for us, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. So he asked that they pray for his ministry on two counts. First, that the word of God may run swiftly. That's in verse 1. In other words, spread rapidly. And then secondly, he asked them to pray for his deliverance from unreasonable and wicked men in verse 2. And you got to agree that Paul encountered more than his share of these wicked people during the course of his ministry. Then Paul expresses confidence in them and the Lord in keeping them from evil, along with an exhortation to remain patient in the midst of the tribulation that they were experiencing. The patience of Christ is a reference to the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18 In chapter 3, verses 6-15, through Paul warns against busybody deadbeats verse 6 but we command you brethren in the name of our lord jesus christ that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us for we were not disorderly among you nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread." But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Well, you've heard the verse, idleness is the devil's workshop. Well, I hate to break this to you, but it's not a scripture. However, it does seem to be the essence of this passage on keeping busy. Everyone is encouraged to work. He points out that when one has idle time on his hands, he has a tendency to use that time negatively. It seems likely that these verses are intended to put a stop to the bad teaching that Paul had been dealing with in chapters 1 and 2. Consider this scenario. They had heard the teaching that the persecution and trouble they were experiencing meant that they were in the tribulation. People with idle time on their hands were spreading the word the incorrect false word. Now, assuming that to be the case, Paul tells them to avoid those who do not embrace the solid teachings of Paul in verse 6. He refers to them as busybodies and disorderly in verse 11. They don't work, they meddle. Paul offers himself as an example inasmuch as much as he worked his trade while he was among them and offers this rule of thumb designed to put a screeching halt to this idle spreading of bad tales and doctrine— If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Incidentally, in verse 9, he remarks that it was not for lack of authority that he chose to work rather than receive their support while there. Because of those who were disorderly, he did it so as to be an example. In verse 13, he encourages them to not become discouraged as they strive for excellence in the midst of their difficult times. So how are Paul's letters to be viewed? People often ask me, they asked, Did Paul know he was writing Scripture when he wrote his letters? Well, verses 14 and 15 seem to demonstrate that he did. Here's what he says And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. You can see that Paul was adamant that fellowship with the believers should only be maintained with those who embrace the teaching in Paul's own letters. And finally, it's time for Paul to say goodbye in chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. We saw in chapter 2 that letters apparently were circulating in Paul's name that were forgeries. Paul points out here that while he may have dictated this letter to a secretary, he wrote this salutation without help from a transcriber. He says, with my own hand. This signed by his own hand, that was provided to validate this letter as authentic.